invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 11 this morning as we turn in God's word to hear from our God. Genesis chapter 11, there in the very beginning of our Bibles, page 8 in the Bibles there in front of you. God's setting before us the origins, the foundations of his creation and explaining to us how things came to be. After God made covenant with Noah, as we saw last week, we read a a repeat of the beginning of human history, something of a repeat. Scholars see a parallel between Adam and Noah. Adam sinned by eating, and Noah sinned by drinking. We see there in chapter 9. We didn't look at that directly, but it's there in chapter 9. As a result, there is effect upon uh, the offspring of Adam, Adam's Sin upon his children is evident in Cain and also the effect of Noah's sin upon his children. We see that one of his sons sinned against his father by dishonoring him, by looking upon his nakedness. And as a result of his sin, Noah pronounced a curse upon his descendants. We see it there at the end of chapter 9. Let me come to chapters 10 and 11 with a lot of names, with a genealogy. Uh, It begins in chapter 10, goes through uh, the end of chapter 10, then a few verses are are given to the Tower of uh, Babel, as we're going to look this morning, and then the end of chapter 11, we read of the offspring of Noah's sons, the table of nations, as it's been called. Where do the nations come from? Well, we see here in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 where that happens. In these verses, the focus is on the nations, upon the peoples. Uh, Where there are individuals listed, they are representative of the nations that come from them. The number, if you note there, if you were to look at that today, there are 70 nations, that number connoting completeness. What we see before us then is all the peoples of the earth uh, coming upon review before, uh, before the Lord. These are all the people who are on the face of the earth. And they pass before the Lord. He sees the nations. And before the Bible zooms in on one family in particular, the family of Abraham, we see all of the peoples of the earth and their abbreviated ancestry. We read in chapter 10 that they were dispersed according to their languages and nations. Verse 5, verse 20 and verse 31 say that, and you say, now wait a minute, verse 10 talks about them dispersing and having languages? I thought that chapter 11 was about that. Well, we want to understand what's going on here. We want to understand that the Bible is giving a general account of the world in chapter 10, and then chapter 11 is looking at the backstory, how this came to be. This is because of the dispersion from the Tower of Babel. We have this before in the scriptures. Genesis chapter 1 gives us a general sense of the creation. Genesis 2 then looks back and looks at day 6 in particular to help us understand the origin of humanity. And here we have something similar taking place. So chapter 11 really tells us what's caused the dispersion and the different languages that were talked about or mentioned by way of passing in chapter 10. We're going to look then at the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11. Give attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, 
Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. From there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of God and truth which does not pass away. Dear congregation, after Noah comes out of the ark, his family multiplies. We see the descendants of Noah. They obviously have a common origin And they share a common language. Their origin is that of Noah. They have a common command, however, also, don't they, to subdue the earth, to fill the earth, to spread out. And they do in part. We we don't see it really as a a full obedience to God's command. They, They do it simply so that they can find a piece of ground where they can live. But it's not in the sense of of spreading to to the ends of God's creation. We see that they are gathered here together. I want you to notice something just, just by way of observation. It's obvious to us, but in, in relationship to today's sociology that says, oh, there's, there were people upon the earth billions and billions of years ago, and they lived here, and we've, they were existing well before any of these other things happening. The Bible tells us very clearly that this here is the, is the source of all of the population of the world. End of chapter 9 says this, so that we don't, uh, chapters, verses 18 and 19 of chapter 9 say this, so we don't miss it. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark, and they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. This This is the whole population of the earth. One name is repeated there. You notice Ham is repeated and his son Canaan is mentioned. Why is Canaan mentioned? Because he is the forefather of that people group that stood over against God and his people. And so he is singled out. Canaan, the one who would stand against God's people. And we see the continued antithesis here, the two lines of men. The people spread out, but again, not too far. In fact, they encourage each other to stay close together. They gather together, and we read there in verses 3 and 4, they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, settling down is not the problem. It's the attitude that's behind this endeavor. It is to make a name for ourselves, to have a tower in the heavens that we might not be spread out as we're told the Lord would have us to do. 
If you remember some time ago when we were looking at earlier chapters in Genesis, we said God is not against work. God is not against technological advancement. He has placed things in his creation for us to discover to encourage fruitfulness. And ambition is not a bad thing. Technological advancement is part of man's obedience to subduing the earth. What's wrong is the attitude in the pursuit. Come, let us, let us make a name for ourselves. Friends, when we read the scriptures, it's not hard to see in the scriptures that boasting, human boasting, is something that God despises. God does say over and over again, he says it specifically in one place, and he says it by way of other words in other places, I will not share my glory with another. And when man says, let us make a name for ourselves, let us lift the tower to heaven that we might be equal with God, the Lord is angry. He says, I choose the weak and the lowly things, the despised things, the things that are not. So that all would see my glory in working through them. And that man might not boast before me. Indeed, he says in Psalm 5, the boastful shall not stand before my eyes. I don't think I have to convince you that we live in a boastful society today. We live in a global society where there is a unifying of nations and attempt to do so to create great power. There's a rebelliousness against God and his commands. There is a great encouragement and pressure in society to rebel against him. And those who aren't part of that program, those who aren't part of that, of that system, are shamed and threatened. Threatened to be cut off from society. Technological advancement has led us to do things that we ought not to do. It's, we, we, we say to ourselves, well, if we can do something, we should be able to do something. Instead of saying, well, what are, the, what are the standards by which we exercise our technological advancement? What are the limits? What has God said concerning who we are and how we're made up? A year ago, a member from one of my former congregations lost her job because she would, uh, would not use the preferred pronouns of those who came to her. She's a physician's assistant. Um, her story just came out on Fox News this past week. And she, she lost her job because she was filling out a form and it, it asked, will, will, will you do this? And, and it also said, will you also encourage those who want to have transgender surgery to get that surgery done? And she said, I, I couldn't in good conscience say yes to those things. Interestingly, it was the diversity department at her hospital that was asking her to give her position, but their diversity apparently did not include her particular understanding, her beliefs. And so she has been fighting to get her job back now for over a year and a half. Not angrily, but simply fighting for liberty, the liberty to hold views as such and not lose her job. She's not standing against anyone. She is standing in the truth. But the world refuses that. They say, no, we have technologies now, and we have new realities, and you are to submit to them, and you are to encourage them, and you are to be participating in them. And if you do not, we will remove you from your position. We live in a boastful world making, that seeks to make a name for itself, seeks to, 
uh, create its own reality. There are many other ethical issues that we, that we could think about that have come up as a result of our culture rejecting God and his word. Unethical, unethical reproductive technologies, surrogacy, human-animal hybrid creations, biotechnology, redefining marriage, all these and more are attempts to play God and to reject the one true God. Illustrations, if, we, if you must, of, of empire building, of present-day empire building. What's going on here at Babel is clear. It's rebellion. And that is the problem of the human heart. That's the problem that we have. It is not unequal pay. It is not unequal access to sport. It is not being born into the wrong body. Our greatest misery is caused by our rebellious hearts, that we are at odds with God. This Babel, if you follow it through Scripture, is the foundation for the nation of Babylon. There on the plains of Shinar, the great world empire, which would be established later, an enemy of God and his people. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8, we read of the father of this enterprise. His name was Nimrod. Nimrod, and the name ironically means, we shall rebel. Fitting for someone who who seeks to establish Babel and Babylon and Assyria and Nineveh. All of those names come to our minds if we have a working knowledge of scripture uh, that's Remind us that those are the nations that stand against God and his people. He was a mighty man. It says it over, it says it three times. He was a mighty man. He was mighty, mighty like Nimrod. And today we 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 honor might, don't we? We like to to think of mighty people and look up to mighty people. We put well, maybe not so much anymore. It used to be you put posters up in your room of people that you honored, people that you thought were, were, were worth looking up to. Now, I don't know if you put posters up in your rooms, but uh, certainly we have people that we think, oh, if only I could be like that person. Well, Nimrod was that person. He was great. He was mighty. And people, the people of the world looked up to him. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to, to have their own accomplishments. They wanted to have their own name. And this attitude was prevalent here on the plain of Shinar. His name is not mentioned in chapter 11, but he is the one behind this rebellious work. He is the one who's behind the head of, he's the head of the nations who stood against God and his people here in Genesis chapter 11. His line was filled with rebels and boasters. One such boaster was his descendant, Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 4. Really quite sounds quite, quite like what we read here in Genesis 11. He says this as he's walking around the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. He says, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And you remember what happens to him. Immediately judgment falls upon him because he's boasting before the Lord, thinking himself something great. The Lord will not allow that to continue. Well, evil empires are throughout history, aren't they? Time and time again, we see them rise up. But we also remember that they fall. They do not endure. They don't last. 
There is an aspiration in these people. I want us to note it says, Come, let us make a name for ourselves. What a contrast to what God says as he turns from the nations to that individual in the next chapter, Abraham, and he says, I am going to make your name great. I will establish your name forever among the nations. God is the one who does this, He gives us a name that lasts forever. Joel, as you raise these boys, you've given your son a name. But what you want to teach him is that the name that God gives is the name that lasts forever. My redeemed, the one that God's, when God says, my child, that is the name that we want to remind them of. The one who receives Christ receives everlasting life, a name that lasts forever. The brothers teach that too by who they imitate by who they look up to, right? And you remind your younger brother that God is the one that you are to serve. Teach then, Joel, teach this to your children, not to fear the numerous and the violent people of this world, the mighty people that we're tempted to look up to, but to look up to the Lord who gives the name that endures. Humanity is beating its chest here as it comes together in rebellion. And we see that in our culture today. Declaring, we will make a name for ourselves. Look at this mighty tower we're going to build. It's going to be used, or it's going to be built by the latest and greatest technology there is. There's bricks burned in the fire for for, uh, longevity and bitumen uh, for the mortar. But then we read in verses 5 to 7 this, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, notation for the Trinity, come, let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go down And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord is not unaware of what is happening at this time. He's not unaware of what is happening in our day. He comes down. He sees and he acts. The Bible tells us that he's fully aware of what the world is doing. And of the motivation behind those activities. And there's divine humor in this portion of scripture that we must draw attention to verse 5 it says this here is the mightiest the greatest work of man and it says the Lord came down he came down to see the city not that he couldn't see it from where he was he's he's omniscient he's all he's all knowing but it's to emphasize the greatness of man is nothing in comparison to who God is he comes down to see what they are doing Over and over, the Bible reminds us that we are to be humble. Man's greatest attempts to impress God aren't great in his eyes. We're reminded of our state before the Lord. We cannot stand before him. Psalm 2 is a passage that comes to mind when we're thinking about this. You remember those words? Psalm 2, man will not stand against the Lord. When When all the nations come together, even in all of their combined power, they are nothing before the Lord. The Lord is not afraid of man's efforts. 
Perhaps you need to hear that this morning. I know I need to hear that from time to time when I watch the news and think of what's going on and I think, is, is, is the Lord aware? Does he know what's going on? What, what, what is, why is this occurring? Why is this taking place? They seem so powerful. But God sees what's going on. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? There's vanity in this plot. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He says, Lincoln Logs. That's what I think of your greatest accomplishment. Lincoln Logs. Friends, the Lord is sovereign over the affairs of men. The greatest evil alliance is no match for him. He warns the wicked in this psalm to honor the Son, to worship the Son, to serve the triune God in Psalm 2 at the end. For life is found there, safety is found in him. You see, when we read verse 6 of chapter 11 of Genesis... We ought not to think that God is saying that he's afraid of what man will do, that he's threatened by man's potential. In fact, what he's saying is he sees the self-destructive course that man is on as he comes together, and it's going to be the end of him unless the Lord scatters it, unless the Lord intervenes. And so he intervenes. He comes down. His plans, you see, dear people of God, will come to pass. He says in Isaiah 14, verse 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so it shall stand. These words are in the context of God's promised judgment upon his enemies. The Lord acts against the rebellious. They will not escape the day of judgment. Here he confuses the language of these rebels. People wanted to make a name for themselves, and they got a name all right. It's a name that's remembered throughout history as a laughingstock. They were confused. They were confused by the Lord, and they gave off building the tower. They left off building the tower and were dispersed. What they feared most, God compels them to do or God does to them. He scatters them. Now we hear all about race today and we say, now what is the story here? What's going on? There's this, all this animosity between races and the Bible doesn't talk about race. You'd be, you'd be hard-pressed. Indeed, you, you, I'd challenge you to find that concept in the word. It talks about people groups. It talks about language groups. And we see how those came about right here in Genesis chapter 11. But there is a common origin in all of these people, and that is they come from Noah. They come from the Lord's hand. And there are two types of people. Those who serve the Lord and those who do not. Those are the two groups that Scripture recognizes. 
And so what we need to understand is behind, of all this, behind all this animosity between people of different colors is sin. It is pride. It is anger which leads to murder. That's what's behind all of this. That's why the gospel needs to be proclaimed that they might know how they can be set free from their anger from their murderous spirit, from their pride, from their boasting, from their path, which leads to destruction. And as we recognize, language is not a problem for God because you see, many years later, he reverses the curse, doesn't he, at Pentecost in the book of Acts. When he says the gospel is going to go to the nations, to all different people groups, and he gives the ability to his messengers tongues to speak in the languages of the people that they might hear the gospel, that they might come together. Friends, that's why we need the church to proclaim the gospel. It brings an end to strife. It brings an end to animosity. It brings, it brings peace. It brings unity. Well, consider this. From this point in Scripture, we read of God pronouncing judgment upon those who want to make a name for themselves, and he pronounces judgment upon those who bear that name, and the name is Babel or Babylon. That's why that name is so prevalent. The name Babel means in that language, gate of God. The people thought that by making themselves this tower, they were going to make themselves equal to God and they would no longer have to live under his rule, under his reign. They would certainly not have to disperse. They could do what they want, when they want, how they want. Because after all, if they all come together, they'll be invincible. The arrogance was astounding. They, they wanted to make God do what they commanded. We know it doesn't work out that way. Verse 9, we read that the name Babel came to mean not gate to God, but confusion. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. There in the Hebrew, the word relating to confusion. Our plans are destroyed from this point on in the scriptures. Wherever you read this, in the major prophets, in the minor prophets, this word Babylon is connected to those who stand against the Lord. He pronounces judgment on Babel or Babylon. And then all the way to the end of the scriptures, we read in, in, in Revelation 18, what do we read? What rose up from Babylon? Was it the tower? No, it says, and the sin of Babylon rose to heaven. Revelation 18.5. That's what stood out before the Lord. Not their greatness of power, but their greatness of sin. And then we see that Babylon there in Revelation has become the embodiment of pride and vice and all that stands against God and his people. Symbolic of that. In Revelation we see two cities being built. Man and his attempts to build a city 
And then what do we see at the end? The city of God, what? Being built by man? No. Coming down from heaven. That which God has built, that which will, will endure forever. That place where those who have named the name of Christ will live forever. In perfect harmony. Well, as we close, what do we think about? As, as we, what do we think about? What, we, what have we learned from this passage? Well, earthly power and greatness is not the same as greatness in the kingdom of God. This great man that we referenced, I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but we referred to Nimrod in chapter 10. He was great from the world's perspective. The builder of the city, he was looked up to, something like a, like a, 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 a Putin and a, a Xi Jinping rolled into one, something that someone who had all this, these weapons at his command and that he could intimidate and terrify. But as great as these rulers are, they will not endure. Greatness in the world's eyes matters nothing in the kingdom of God. He looks down. He has to come down to look upon these works of man. Well, secondly, God's plan and his word will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. He will not give his glory to another. He will laugh and mock when men try to make their way and set up their kingdoms in this world, when men try to recreate uh, those creational norms, when they seek to live apart from him. That's the curriculum of today in our universities and in our uh, halls of power, trying to change the way things are, and God simply says, no, it won't happen. It won't endure. We need to remember that. We need to pray for the end of it and speak the truth in, in the midst of it. Thirdly, true unity that God intends between man is spiritual unity. It's the only unity that matters. It's the unity that's only found in common confession of Jesus Christ. Unity only exists where the glory of Christ is at the heart and binds those who are transformed in heart together. Where together we bow before the heavenly throne. Where together we stand before the cross of Christ and say, I am a sinner. Forgive me by your grace. No one lording it over another. I am more oppressed than you. I fit the category of receiving more reparation than you. No, together before the cross, none of us deserves any of it. We deserve condemnation, but there at the cross, as we confess our faith in Christ, the one whom God has sent, we find forgiveness. And God welcomes in those from the ends of the earth. And then this final point from another pastor that I was reading this week. The Tower of Babel glorifies God. How? Well, because God wills everything to his own glory. Okay, how? How is this going to glorify God? This Tower of Babel, this, this master rebellion. Well, listen to the reasons. God's scattering hinders the development of a global, monolithic, anti-God government. We think of different languages as a hindrance to advancement, to progress. But God is far more concerned 
about a centralized government, a centralized currency, a centralized power leading massive numbers of people astray, turning them from him to them. The lesson here is that a world government set up on a secular basis will destroy. It will be ultimately destructive to all people. Well, his glory is made plain because he's powerful to save people from every nation as well. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go to the ends of the earth, for God is able to save to the uttermost. One of my favorite psalms in the Trinity Psalter is 47, clap your hands, you nations. Clap your hands and shout. Let your praise ring out. People's Far and near, God most high revere. Awesome king is he, great in majesty. It goes on to talk about how God is delivering people from the ends of the earth. The final point under this last application, God's glory will be greater because of the praise that Christ will receive from all of the languages of the world. Revelation 5 and 7, we are told that the people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will praise Christ. God will get glory from even something as evil as the Tower of Babel, which seems so so destructive, so disruptive. God says, oh no, it's only serving to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the languages that I might be shown to be God over all people. That Christ might receive more glory that I, the Father, will be glorified unto eternity through the work of the Holy Spirit. So don't miss this point as we end. God is on his throne, foiling the foolish plans of wicked men in working out his sovereign will and ordering all things, even the wicked schemes of evil men, for it is to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Your Father in heaven, as we look out On the landscape today, we are troubled by what we see. We recognize by your grace that there is good and evil. We know right and wrong, contrary to what the culture might tell us. We see it. We have to make make decisions by it. Grant us discernment according to your word and not according to the increasingly unstable standards of our culture. May we stand boldly, and as we're going to see tonight, lovingly, For, Lord, we know that without your grace, without your mercy, without your spirit, we too would be raising up our fist in rebellion. Lord, forgive our sins. Keep us from pride. Grant us humility under Christ. We ask that you would hear us for his sake. Amen.